I want to uh, ask you guys if you would just take a moment with me. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Lord, uh, we come before you this morning. We are reminded from this series that Milton has taken us through that you are a helping God. And so we ask for you to help us right now. Help me to minister your word and help your people to receive your word. We know, Lord, that unless you work in our hearts, nothing good can come from our gathering. But we trust that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. You are here with us, Lord, and we pray that you would give to us a sense of your presence. We, we invite you, Lord, to be here with us and to, and to do the work uh, in us that only you are able to do, that you would help us to receive you, to receive your word and to benefit from your word, Lord, we pray that if there is and no doubt there is anyone who is here with us today who has yet to come to faith in Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of their understanding, that you by your spirit would draw them to yourself, and that you would cause them to be born again. And so we surrender that into your hands as well. Lord, we thank you above all for Christ, whose blood was shed for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start the message with once upon a time. Once upon a time. Many years ago, when I had a full set of hair, many years ago, after graduating with my degree in history, earning... Uh, in history and then earning a single subject teaching credential, I applied for teaching positions throughout the Inland Empire and the surrounding area. Many applications were submitted. And over the course of, of I think, about 18 months, I did not get so much as a single phone call. The doors for teaching in Southern California were slammed shut in my face. And then um, I volunteered to go with my dad to visit family on the island of Guam. I think I was close to 23 uh, at the time. While there, I filled out an application to teach on the island. The following Sunday, I visited Aganya Heights General Baptist Church. And after the service, the pastor's wife, Mrs. Sablon, engaged me, I remember, in a very warm and friendly conversation. I remember how she encouraged me to return to the church and to help out with the ministry there. Neither of us knew at the time that I would be interviewed a few days later to teach in Guam. And near the end of the interview, Dr. Bartonico, who was interviewing me, informed me that there were no current openings. But he was interrupted by an employee and he was asked to step out of the office. When he returned, he told me that one of his social studies teacher 
teachers had just submitted her resignation and that he would like for me to take the job. Needless to say, I accepted the job, returned home to pack, and within 10 days, I was back in Guam teaching in the classroom. And some of you here today remember way back then when I had hair and I was bidding farewell to my brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone. That Wednesday, I returned to Aganya Heights and Mrs. Sablon was thrilled to see me and she told me that she had prayed for my return. It was while in Guam that I preached my first sermon and I sensed the Lord calling me into full-time vocational ministry. And I share this part of my story because it illustrates how the Lord sometimes closes doors and he takes us on unexpected paths in order to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And we will see this illustrated so beautifully in our passage this morning. Today, we will take a look into a part of Paul's second missionary trip as recorded for us in the book of Acts. We're going to begin our study in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. I'm going to ask you to turn in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and and to follow along with me as we work our way through the passage. We are not going to bunker down on detail. Uh, Rather, we are going to consider a bird's eye view. We're going to cover a lot of ground here, so bear with me. In summary, the part of Paul's second missionary trip that we are considering It begins with a conflict, continues with closed doors, and culminates with a clear call from God, clear direction. And on the other side of the call, we observe conversions to Christ and a church planted. And I cannot overstate that the history of Europe would be forever changed as a result. This is a big deal. Our message is entitled, When God's Sovereign Plan Includes Conflict and Closed Doors. We will frame the message around five descriptions related to Paul's second missionary trip that should encourage us. It should encourage us when when God's sovereign plan includes conflict and closed doors. Uh, Number one, the first description, Paul's missionary trip begins... With conflict, and you will see this beginning in chapter 15, verse 36. It reads And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and let us see how they are. You will notice that Paul's plan was specific. Let us return. And visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul wants to retrace the steps of his first missionary trip. He was concerned for the spiritual well-being of the brethren there. And Paul can think of no greater companion than Barnabas, whose name incidentally means encouragement. Barnabas, son of encouragement. 
Barnabas was the one who stood by Paul's side and defended him when everyone in the Jerusalem church feared Paul and they questioned the sincerity of his salvation. You can read that in Acts 9, 26 to 27. Barnabas was the one who, when the church at Antioch was bursting at the seams with salvation growth, he had a vision for Paul and so went to Tarsus, got Paul, and then brings Paul back to Antioch where they ministered together for a year. Acts eleven twenty two to 26. And Barnabas was Paul's main companion during their first missionary trip. He journeyed with Paul throughout the entirety of that trip. We see that beginning in Acts 13, 2. And so Paul, in our passage today, proposes a great plan. Barnabas seems agreeable to the idea, but there is one problem. And we are introduced to the problem in verse 37. Read with me verse 37. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Barnabas and Paul differ over whether or not to take John Mark along also. Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin, but Paul saw John Mark as a flake. Mark had bailed on them on their first missionary trip. Barnabas had vision for Mark. He wanted to give him another chance, but Paul would have nothing to do with it. Paul did not want to run the risk of being forsaken again. And Luke goes on to say in verse 39, and there arose such a sharp disagreement, a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. It is no stretch to say that such a sharp disagreement resulting in Barnabas taking off would have been a disappointment, a potential discouragement to Paul. After all, they had engaged in so much ministry together, fighting the good fight of faith and braving the battles together. Barnabas was Paul's very good friend, if not his best friend. Paul's plan was that they ministered together, but his plan would not come into fruition. John MacArthur asserts that the sharp disagreement was not an amicable parting. Kent Hughes points out that the Greek word for sharp disagreement is the word paroxysmos, from where we get paroxysm. He says it denotes violent action or emotion. This was not a mild gentleman's disagreement, but it was an intense and passionate conflict. James Montgomery Boy states that the two men disagreed so violently that they actually went separate ways. But who are we to blame? Some point out that Paul was an apostle with greater authority than Barnabas and that Paul and Silas were the ones committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Thus they say Barnabas should have submitted to the apostle Paul. Others point out that Barnabas was an encourager who embraced a gospel ethic 
of second chances. Paul, they say, should have given John Mark an opportunity to redeem himself. I am inclined to think that if years later you were to ask Mark, he would have understood both perspectives. He would have understood Paul. He would have understood Barnabas. He would not have blamed Paul for the decision he made. Yet he would be appreciative of Barnabas's decision not to give up on him. And what I love is that Paul here on the other side of this conflict does not throw in the towel. He may have been tempted to discouragement, but he was not defeated. He might have been disappointed at some level, but he was not done. Listen to what the writer goes on to say in verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and he departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul perseveres and he launches out on the second missionary trip. His plan adjusted. He takes Silas, a Jewish believer, a prophet who had a healthy command of the word of God. Silas might not have been Paul's plan one, but he serves as an excellent plan two. The writer highlights the fact that they were committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And so they travel northward through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The conflict between Paul and Barnabas yields to fruit. This is not to dismiss them for their responsibility to live at peace with each other. They understood and embraced the importance of reconciliation. When? I am not sure, but I know that they worked through their disagreement. Paul later speaks well of Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. And Paul will also speak well of John Mark in 2 Timothy 4, 11. Paul writes, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But at this point of the narrative, the conflicts are not all fully resolved. Yet, wonder of wonders, the Lord will sovereignly use the conflict to multiply ministry. We've got two rather than one ministry team going out in two separate areas. This multiplication ended up working out for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, the conflicts in your lives are not necessarily the end of you. Know that God sovereignly uses conflicts for his glory and even for our good. How we respond to such conflicts makes all of the difference in the world. Are we trusting God? Are we seeking reconciliation and restoration? And sometimes it may not seem as if we can be reconciled and restored right away. But are we praying about that? And are we determined that in due time there would be such a reconciliation and restoration? Are we pressing on? Paul's answer to these questions, I believe, would have been yes. And so this takes us to description number two. Number two, Paul's missionary trip took him through familiar cities and churches previously planted. We read this in chapter 16, verse 1 through 5. In verse 1, it says, He came also to Derbe and Lystra. These are cities where Paul ministered on his first missionary trip. 
on his first visit to Lystra, Paul was stoned. You will recall he was stoned by the Jews, dragged out of the city, and he was left for dead. The Jews believed with certainty that he was going to die. So they leave him outside the city. But God preserves him. The next day, Paul and Barnabas leave Lystra. They go to Derby where they preach. And the Bible tells us they made many disciples there. And then following Derby, this is amazing. Paul uh, backtracks to Lystra. He goes back to the city where he was stoned because he loved the people and he loved the enemies of God. He wanted to see them coming to faith in Christ. So he doubles up and he revisits that city in order to strengthen them and to appoint elders in all of the churches. And this took place on his first missionary trip. But now, now in our passage, Paul finds himself in Lystra again. And the text goes on to say, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. This is no chance meeting. We read the word behold. The introduction of Timothy should grab our attention. God's sovereign plan includes the blessing of bringing Paul and Timothy together. Paul sees the potential in Timothy and he looks into the possibility that Timothy would join him on the missionary journey. Timothy agrees and the passage goes on to say, and he, Paul, took him, Timothy, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. John MacArthur states that Timothy was circumcised not for the purpose of salvation, but to aid his acceptance by the Jews and provide full access to the synagogues. If Timothy had not been circumcised, the Jews could have assumed he had renounced his Jewish heritage and had chosen to live as a Gentile. And so in the spirit of being all things to all people, and in order to remove an unnecessary obstacle... Timothy is circumcised. Let's read on verse four. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, hearkening back to the Jerusalem council, uh, the decrees for them to observe. And so in Acts 15, we do read about the Jerusalem council. It was a meeting of church leaders in order to discuss the matter of salvation, especially as it related to the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. The leaders of the Jerusalem Council embraced God's work in the Gentiles, and they affirmed the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Gentile believers did not have to keep the law or to be circumcised in order to be saved. God was doing a legitimate work in them as they believed they received the spirit and experienced change of life. Nevertheless, uh, the council did propose that the Gentiles abstain and they gave them a list of four pagan idolatrous practices that were violations of the law of Moses so as not to offend the Jews. You see, what's going on in that council is that they were concerned 
that Gentile believers live in such a way so as to foster fellowship between them and their fellow Jewish brethren. Thus, Paul delivers the decrees of the Jerusalem council as he passes through the cities. And the result of Paul's ministry, verse 5 tells us, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. Strengthened and increasing in number daily. The power of the gospel is on display here and throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. And so Paul is able to fulfill at least a part of his plan in traveling through Derby and then Lystra. He is able to check in on the believers and strengthen them. He is blessed to know that through the power of the gospel, folks were being saved every single day. And on top of all of that, he meets Timothy, a man who would be a tremendous ministry partner who would one day pastor the church that would be planted in Ephesus and who would receive letters from Paul that are now included in our New Testament canon. Such a story gives ample reason to press on despite discouragements, disappointments. We may experience conflict, but we ought not to let those to cause us to stop. We should never quit. Saints of God, never quit. Never give up. Press on. Fight the good fight of faith. We must keep this in mind as we come to description number three. Paul's ministry trip continues with closed doors. He experiences closed doors. Verse six of chapter 16 says, And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Here we see the first of two closed doors. Paul and his team are looking to travel west towards Asia, located along the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. Ephesus was in that direction. Such a direction westward would likely allow Paul perhaps to visit other churches planted on his first missionary trip. Remember, he had in mind to visit the brethren in every city where he had preached. But the text makes it clear that at this time, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. This is not to say that God did not care for the folks in Asia. After all, there later comes a time on this missionary trip when Paul will come back around into that area. But for now, for now, the Lord has other plans. How does Paul respond? Is he discouraged? Is he defeated? Does he quit? Does he allow the closed door to derail him? No. He makes an adjustment. He alters his plan. He decides then to head north. And we read this in verse 7, where it says, And when they had come to Mysia, They were trying to go into Bithynia. So they're heading northward since they can't go westward. They're heading more northward, if you will, seeking to make their way into Bithynia. It says the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Here we see the second closed door. Paul is looking to go north, but the text tells us the spirit did not permit them. Come on, come on, not again. You've got to be kidding me, Lord. Why do you keep slamming the door in my face? 
Is this Paul's response? I don't think so. Nor does he throw in the towel. He does not quit. He perseveres and he plows ahead. For those of us who like a plan, this can be frustrating. Some of us want to sketch out the details. We want things to go uh, a certain way and in a certain order. We are control freaks and we have difficulty embracing these mid-course corrections. But the Bible says that man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. James in his epistle reminds us that as we plan, we must remain open to the Lord's will. We do well to proceed our plans with, if the Lord wills, I will do this and that and such and such. We must always allow for the sovereignty of God to alter our plans. In Paul's case, it was not the Lord's will at this time for him to go west into Asia or to go north into Bithynia. So what was the Lord's will? And the text tells us, verse 8, and passing by Mysia, he came down to Troas. It was God's will to lead Paul and his team into Troas on the edge of the Aegean Sea. And while in Troas, the Lord will provide Paul with clear clarity, clarity he needs regarding the next step. Let's, this takes us to the next observation. Number four, uh, Paul's missionary trip includes a clear call, a clear call into Macedonia. Verse nine says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a certain man of Macedonia standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. At this point of Paul's second mission trip, clarity comes in the form of a vision. Until this point, Paul perseveres through conflict and closed doors. He presses on in his journey. He proclaims Christ and he strengthens some of the church that he planted on his first missionary trip. His plans were often prevented, but the Lord is guiding. The Lord directs through the conflict and disappointment. God directs through the closed doors. And now God gives direction through a vision of a man calling Paul to make his way across the Aegean into Macedonia, the land that we know today as modern-day Europe. But in Troas, the Lord does more then just issue the Macedonian call. Read on verse 10. And when he had seen the vision, immediately the text says, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want to direct your attention to the first person plural, we. Up until this point, the writer refers to Paul, Silas, Timothy as they. Uh, but now they turns into the we. Here from Troas, the writer includes himself in the narrative. Somewhere in or near Troas, Paul meets the man who later writes the book that we read from right now. Paul meets Luke, the beloved physician, an able, intelligent, and highly capable man of God. Luke becomes a part of the formidable force that would step foot in Europe to proclaim the gospel. 
Verse 11, verse 11. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, right? They, it says, we ran, we, including Luke, we ran a, a straight course to Samothrace, the island, and on the day following to Neapolis, on the other side of the sea now, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. And so Paul's journey has taken him and his companions to the city of Philippi. Luke tells us they stayed there for some days. On one such day, Paul's team goes to the riverside, and there he is proclaiming Christ. He is preaching Christ, evangelizing. And what happens in Philippi, beginning at the riverside, alters the entire course of European history. And we will see this as we consider the final description related to Paul's second missionary trip. Paul's missionary trip results in tremendous and unanticipated fruit. It was not part of the original plan in his mind. God had redirected him, finally brings him to this place, and his missionary trip at this point results in tremendous and originally unanticipated fruit. You see this in 16, chapter 16, beginning in verse 14 and following. What I don't want us to miss is the sovereign hand of Almighty God as he leads every step of the way. Paul was called as an apostle and missionary to spread the gospel. Paul's second missionary trip began with a plan, but his plan did not prevail. His plan was immediately met with a sharp disagreement. The conflict resulted in Paul and Barnabas parting ways, but Paul presses on and the Lord uses him. He and Silas head north, and are joined by Timothy at Lystra. And after that, they head west, but run into a closed door. Then heads north, but is prevented from going into Bithynia, another closed door. So he ends up in Troas, where he meets Luke and receives the call into Macedonia. And by the time Paul arrives in Philippi, the Lord has assembled a formidable team that was about to take Europe by storm. Consider the following. The conversion of Lydia. Verse 14, it says a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. So this is a wealthy woman of influence, no doubt. Uh, presumably she had a big house, as we will find out a little bit later. She was a well-to-do person. And it tells us she is at the riverside. She's listening to Paul preach the gospel. And it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Note that God is the one who must open the eyes of our understanding in order to believe in him. Lydia would not have believed in Christ, as we will see, she would not have believed in Christ unless the Lord had opened her heart. Salvation is always a miraculous work of God. It is always a power encounter in which God by the Spirit comes into the life of a person and giving them the grace they need to repent and to believe in Christ. Amen. And so Lydia, it says, 
the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Consider the conversion of Lydia's entire household, verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, Lydia was not the only one to come to faith in Christ. The text says her entire household was baptized. Uh, This would have included, amongst other people, her spouse, children, extended family, and slaves as well. We get the sense that the Lord did a mighty work in the entire household of Lydia. People coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a power encounter. We don't know how many were in her household, but we know everyone there was baptized. The writer then tells us that Lydia opened her home for Paul's entire ministry team to stay. They accepted her invitation and now they they have a base of operation from which to minister at Philippi. This represents the very beginnings of the church being planted in Philippi and planted most likely in the home of Lydia. Did Paul know that the Lord was going to do such an awesome work when he set out to begin with? No, but this is the Lord leading and directing and guiding and bringing him to where he needed him to be. And then in due time, Lydia comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Her family comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will take us then to another power encounter. Consider the exorcism of a demon-possessed slave girl in Acts 16, beginning in verse 16 through 18. I'll let Luke tell the story. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. This is a form of human trafficking, brothers and sisters, where they own this person for the purpose of making a profit from her. And she was following after Paul and us. She kept crying, Luke says. She kept crying out saying, and notice what she says. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, Luke says. But Paul was greatly annoyed, disturbed in his spirit. And he turned and he said to the spirit, to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And so the picture being painted is that Paul and his team ministering out of the home of Lydia every day going out to evangelize. At some point, a demon possessed slave girl who could predict the future began following Paul around. And what she said was spot on. She was proclaiming daily that Paul and his team were servants of the Most High God, true, and they were proclaiming the way of salvation, true as well. At some point, Paul realized that something was not quite right with her. When? I don't know. But he gets fed up and then he exercises the demon. Observe, brothers and sisters, the fact that there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. 
the one who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised up bodily from the dead, who appeared and who ascended onto the right hand of the Father. And from that position on high, all authority has been given to him. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he possesses all power and all authority. There is power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul employs the name of Jesus as he gives command to the demon to come out of the girl. And what happens? The demon comes out immediately. And so Paul does a great thing, right? We would all agree this was a good thing. But money-hungry mongers are not content with God's work, God's way. Their love of money as a root of all kinds of evil captivate their heart to such a degree that they cannot see the good that God has just done. Their hardened hearts leads them to the place where they want to take Paul and Silas to task. So Paul does a good thing and it's not... It is the very thing, the good thing he does that gets him in trouble with the authorities. Let's read verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, Uh, And this is their accusation. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. What did they do wrong? Here is what they did wrong. They went around proclaiming that there is only one God and there is only one way of salvation. They went around saying that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except through him and him alone. He is the only God and all the other gods are false gods. And in a Greco-Roman society where they embrace a pantheon, a plurality of gods and where you worship these gods and you give worship to the emperor, that is a serious problem. And it does not sound a whole lot different from where we are today in our day and in our culture. We have become the minority as believers in Christ, proclaiming that there is only one way of salvation. And increasingly in our culture, people are taking us to task because of our bigotry and because we think rightfully so. That there is only one way of salvation. And because in love we are seeking to direct people to the way of the Savior. And so again, the accusation. And what is the effect of their accusation? Verse 22 says the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, took the robes, tore the robes. This is a violent act, stripped them of their robes. Paul and Silas, there they are, robeless, if you will. And they proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Mr. Jailer, you keep them guarded securely or it is your life. And he, having received, the jailer, having received such a command, 
threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, there is absolutely no way, humanly speaking, that they were going to escape the prison. No way. They were in the inner prison, their feet fastened in the stocks. They were not going to escape. The jailer made certain to that. The masters are not pleased that their means of making money is undermined. So they level charges against Paul, Silas, get them beaten and thrown in jail. But the narrative continues with another amazing power encounter. Consider the conversion of the jailer. Acts 16, 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. In a dark hour, in the midnight hour, having been beaten with rods and having been falsely accused, here they are in the prison and they are in stocks and they are praying to God. Verbally, vocally, they could be heard. By God, God heard their prayers and they are praising God in song. And God is receiving their praises as they are worshiping the Lord in a dark hour. Brothers and sisters, when we go through difficult seasons of life, it's during those times that we must pray to God and we must worship him and affirm the truth of who he is. Knowing that he is the God who is near knowing that he is our helping God and knowing that he inclines his ear to us and he listens to us. He cares for us and he is concerned for us and we are to come to him to bear our burden. So they're singing hymns of praise to God. We know God's listening, but also notice and the prisoners were listening to them as well. They were heard. The theology that came from their praying mouths was heard. The theology that came from their singing lips was being listened to. The prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26 tells us, and you get the sense that on the other side of this, and suddenly there came a great earthquake. Suddenly the ground began to shake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And sometimes when God wants to do a great work, he will accompany that great work with the shaking of the grounds, just like he did when Christ died on the cross for us. And here the grounds are shaking and immediately all of the doors opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open. The first thing he sees is that the doors are open. He concludes that they must have escaped. It says he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. At this point, Paul and Silas have a choice. They could have fled for freedom. They could have just taken off. They could have used their freedom to escape instead they use their freedom to minister to the suicidal jailer. Here they are, and they hear the jailer. And Paul sees that he is on the verge of going to hell on the other side of his suicide. And Paul's heart reaches out to the jailer. And he says to the jailer, it says he cries out with a loud voice saying, Do, harm, do yourself no harm, for we are all here Don't hurt yourself. Put the sword down. 
Stop it, Mr. Jailer. And he called for lights. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. It is a good thing to tremble before God and the work of God and the people of God. It says he fell down before them. And after he brought them out, he said, this is the most beautiful question that the man could have asked. And I suppose the question comes to some degree on the other side of perhaps himself through the walls, hearing the prayers and hearing the praises to God. He is asking them the most important question. Sirs, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Do you remember when you first believed? Do you remember when you transitioned from darkness into light? When you first heard and understood the gospel for the first time? And here we run into the jailer who is asking the question. And for the first time, he is going to hear and understand and believe. He is going to come all the way over to faith in Christ. He asked the question and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. You, you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And it says he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. So they're all coming to faith in Christ. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly. His heart was filled as a result of his own salvation, his sins forgiven, his transition from darkness into light. And it says he rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Thus we see the conversion of the jailer, his whole household. The Lord is doing a mighty work in the city of Philippi. Consider the confrontation of the magistrates now In the interest of time, we're not going to read through this, but verses uh, 35 through 39, you can read that on your own. The bottom line is Paul is going to arrange to have a meeting with the magistrates. And I would love to know if any or all of those magistrates eventually did come to faith in Christ. We don't know. But I am inclined to think that Paul in his own mind, part of what he wants to do is for them to have to see him. And you know what it's like. As a non-believer, when you're in the presence of believers who are lit up with the joy of the Lord, there is something about that that you cannot necessarily put words in, you, you, you can, but you can discern there's something in you that knows they've got something that I don't have and that can provoke a person to faith. Who knows? Perhaps when we are in eternity, we might meet one or two of those jailers and hear their story. But we're going to move on. Consider, consider, consider. The church gathered in the home of Lydia. Verse 40, guys, verse 40 says they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them. And then they departed. They moved on from Philippi. But you'll notice here that after prison, they enter the house of Lydia. And there in her house, they see the brethren. 
once again, this represents the very beginnings of the church plant in Philippi. The first church of Europe, which is a very big deal. And so we see that on the other side of the conflict and the closed doors, as we look at the big picture, there comes a call into Macedonia from where Paul engages in tremendous, powerful, blessed ministry. I want to end by addressing the question that this sermon is begging us to ask. What do we do when God's sovereign plan includes conflict and closed doors? What do we do when God's sovereign plan includes conflicts and closed doors in our lives? Well, one of the things we do well to consider the ways in which God has worked in the lives of others. That's what we have done here this morning. Consider God's work in the life of Barnabas. Barnabas was a man upon whose shoulders the Apostle Paul stood. And Paul goes on to write many of the New Testament books. Barnabas, son of encouragement, was a man upon whose shoulders Mark stood. And Mark goes on to write the gospel according to Mark. God used Barnabas and his gift of encouragement in powerful ways for the purpose of building up the body and who knows how many others were impacted by Barnabas and his ability to encourage others in their journey. Consider God's work in the life of John Mark. The deserter would become a man devoted to God. Perhaps, Paul perhaps gave up on John Mark, but God did not. Let yourself be encouraged by that. The door for joining Paul on the second missionary trip was slammed shut. But the door was open for him to go with Barnabas to Cyprus. And again, the day would come when he would pen one of the four Gospels. A beautiful portrayal of our servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our servant king, and his work while here on earth. Consider God's work in the life of Paul. Think about God's work in the life of Paul. His second missionary journey was accompanied by conflict, closed doors. But Paul presses on and, and, and on the other side of the Macedonian call, he plants the first church in Europe. So consider, we do well to consider the ways in which God works in the lives of other people. Uh, we do well to behold the God, to behold the God who has worked in the lives of such men in other words, we must embrace the truth about who our God is. And in this passage, we see a good, wise, sovereign, powerful God uh, working, working his plan out, accomplishing good. We see God at work in the life of Paul, in the life of Barnabas, in the life of all of these people. And so we see a God who cares who is there for them, who directs and who guides a God who can be trusted. And if we want to have a really good understanding of who our God is, the best place to go is to the foot of the cross. And behold, they're at the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins so that through faith in him, we may be forgiven. The Lord Jesus Christ in mercy and love and compassion. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Dying on a cross, receiving upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that we might, through faith in him, transition from darkness into light and become children of the most high God. 
Consider the cross and what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross made us children of God. Know this God. Behold this God. Seek this God. We do well to embrace the promises of God to those who belong to him. And I'm sure this is part of what the Apostle Paul did every step of the way on this trip. He's the guy that wrote to the Philippians later. And then Philippians 1, 6, what do we read Paul saying? He who began the work, I am convinced, he who began the work, he will be faithful to complete the work in you. The Apostle Paul was the guy who would eventually write a book to the Romans. And we read Paul saying to the Romans, Romans 8, 28, all things. And I'm sure Paul could could come back to this stage of his missionary journey and he can, he can use this as the illustration to, to submit to anyone who wants to listen. All things, all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that part of the all things is that we be conformed into the image of Christ. Part of the all things is that God is glorified in and through our lives. And the apostle Paul could easily say, this is what happened to me. On this first part of my second missionary trip, I'll tell you the story. And I can tell you from experience, all things, all things. You mean that that, that, that bit of a disagreement you had with Barnabas? All things. You mean when the Spirit said no and the Spirit said no? I'm here to tell you, thank God when the Spirit says no. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And with such promises in mind, and there are countless more, brothers and sisters, we do well to persevere through the conflicts and closed doors that the Lord sovereignly ordains in our lives for his glory and for our good. And you know what? The ultimate door will never close on us. He is there right now preparing a place for us. And there are doors into heaven that we will walk through someday. And the day will come when everything's going to make sense. We will behold our Lord and we will worship him perfectly without hindrance. That is our future glory. In the meantime, amidst the conflicts and even the closed doors and in whatever it is that the Lord solemnly allows to bring into our lives, let us seek together to persevere, to press on, to fight the good fight of faith and to never give up, never give up. I think of Winston Churchill in regard uh, uh, to, to World War II. And Winston Churchill, he's there, you know, trying to encourage the people of England regarding the war. And he knew it was a dark day. I shall never surrender. I shall fight in the air. We shall fight in the seas. We shall fight in the land. We will fight on our streets. We will never surrender. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what's going on in your life today. But I am sure that for some of you, you have faced difficulties and discouragements and closed doors and conflicts. And let me say to you today that God would say, never surrender. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Press on. Press on. I want to ask you to join with me in prayer and as the ushers come forward so they can receive our offering.
Let us take a moment to submit this to the Lord as the worship team comes forward to lead us in a final song of praise to God. Let us go ahead and pray. Lord God, we come before you. And I know, Lord, that just over weeks as I've been thinking about this passage, it's been so encouraging to me. It has been a blessing and instructive and an exhortation to me to be reminded of your sovereignty, your goodness, that I must trust in you every step of the way. And Lord, I pray that your people would have been encouraged through this passage. I pray that as we gather together in care groups, Lord, that the the discussion would be fruitful. Lord, we, we want to give to you a small portion of what we have as an offering to you. We pray that you would do much for the advancement of your kingdom, for the glory of God. Use our little offering and multiply it, allowing the gospel to go out. We thank you for our uh, missionaries across the globe. We ask this morning for your blessing, your empowerment, your enablement upon them. Cause their ministry to, to be fruitful. Help them to excel still more and more. Lord, we, we thank you for the missionaries that represent us um, in other countries of the globe. Bless them, Lord. And bless us now as we sing a final song to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.